The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Earlier this year, Netflix aired the fourth season of its popular crime drama, Ozark. And at the end of the first episode, there's this scene. I won't spoil anything, but a cop is walking up to a house, and you can hear this familiar, muffled song coming from within it. He rings the doorbell, someone opens the door, and the song, suddenly undeniably recognizable, comes blaring through. I'm looking for Helen Pierce. Right after that episode aired, the song shot to the top of various charts, and it stayed there for days. The track is called Bam Bam by Jamaican artist Sister Nancy. It was recorded in 1982. Bam Bam hitting the top of the charts is just the latest in a long history of milestones for this song. It's believed to be the most sampled reggae song of all time. To be honest, it would almost be easier to name the people that haven't sampled Sister Nancy just because so many artists have used that song. Um, But probably the most famous now are, you know, Famous by Kanye West. Uh, You've got Beyonce's song, Hold Up. Uh, Jay-Z's song, Bam, which he actually brought Sister Nancy into the studio for. That's freelance journalist Alice Kemp Habib. She's come on to tell us the story of Bam Bam, which recently turned 40 years old. And there's a lot to discuss. There's the traditions of Jamaican reggae and dancehall music. There's the reason this song has been sampled so many times across so many genres. And there's the fact that Sister Nancy didn't get paid royalties for decades. Then our undercover economist Tim Harford joins us to tell another musical story. This one about Twyla Tharp and Billy Joel. They made an unlikely musical together a long time ago, and its turnaround can teach us a lot about failure. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Alice, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Alice recently wrote about Bam Bam for an FT weekly staple called Life of a Song. It's a long-running weekend series where writers look at a song that's important to our culture and then tell the unlikely story behind it. Two books have been made of Life of a Song stories. The series is excellent, and I've put some links in the show notes. Let's talk about who Sister Nancy is and where she fits in the world of reggae and dancehall music. Who is Sister Nancy? Yeah, so she is a female uh, dancehall DJ. Um, and I guess that that's DJ in the Jamaican sense, which is, you know, someone who speaks over a track. It's kind of more like we would use the term MC, to be honest. Mm. Um, so, yeah, she she came up uh, on the dancehall scene in the 1970s. Um, her, her brother was a very well-known uh, dancehall DJ. Um, And he used to kind of go around performing with lots of different sound systems. His name was Brigadier Jerry. 
and she was you know like 15 years old maybe even younger when she first started out going to all these dance halls and she basically just ended up deciding I want to do this so (laughs) she started performing with them she started DJing eventually featured on a few different people's EPs um, and then yeah you know further down the line ended up in the studio to record her debut album. Um, Why do you think it's been sampled so many times like like what makes it so good? tricky isn't it what makes it yeah. sampleable um it's such it, it's so emblematic of Jamaican music for lots of different reasons you yeah. know she she combines two very uh well-known very iconic Jamaican songs on her Bam Bam you've got Toots and the Matals uh 60s track Bam Bam Uh, where that kind of refrain mm-hmm. comes from. And you've also got the rhythm that she sings over, Stalag rhythm, which is, it's been used on loads and loads of different um, Jamaican tracks. So in that sense, it's, it's really evocative. It really, you know, it says this is Jamaican music. I, I was thinking particularly for hip hop artists, when they're when, wanting to pay tribute to their own genres, kind of Caribbean and Jamaican roots. This just stands out as a really obvious example. And how would you describe the difference between reggae music and dancehall music? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. And I think you could probably write a thesis on this. I mean, yeah, firstly, reggae predates dancehall slightly. Reggae started to come about in the 60s, dancehall a bit later Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s. The the most obvious kind of the sonic difference is the tempo. Obviously, reggae is this very laid-back Sunday morning kind of listening. Whereas dancehall was born in Jamaican dancehalls. It's it's music to make you move. It's music to dance to. And then you've also got the subject matter which, I mean, it's quite easy to generalise, I guess, but reggae is generally, you know, about consciousness raising. It's got a political angle, mm. it's quite anti-establishment. Are you ready to stand up and fight the right revolution? Whereas dancehall very quickly became known for something called slap talk which is basically means like sexually explicit lyrics. Sing along. Well then, pick up me friend, I'm your girl, write few letters. Invite some girl, pick up down in a Jamaica. Y'all are tear off me garments. And I'm all pick up in my apartment. And I think that's where Sister Nancy's place within the two genres becomes quite interesting because she is definitely more associated with dancehall. Yeah, but she herself identifies a lot more with reggae. She calls herself a reggae artist. Um, it's because she takes issue with this idea of slack talk. So let's go back to the history for a sec. What's the story of of Sister Nancy writing the song over the Toots and the Maytale song? She had nine tracks of one two that her debut album kind of ready to go, and her producer Winston Riley said like you need one more track to make an album and she just she just didn't have one basically (laughs) um so I think Yellow Man who is her friend and obviously also a a very iconic uh, dancehall artist basically invited her down to the studio one day um and he was recording his own version of uh Toots and the Matals Bam Bam like his own kind of tribute 
Um, and Sister Nancy heard that uh, and she decided she wanted to do the same, do her own version. She uh, went back into the studio and put on Stalagrivum and yeah, just freestyled over it. And I don't think Penn actually touched paper until after she'd recorded it. And then she uh, wrote down the lyrics once it had been uh, recorded. What are the lyrics? Like, what is the song about? I mean, yeah, put simply, it's basically about her ambitions to be a female and MC and her status within dancehall as the first yeah, female dancehall MC. As for the meaning of the phrase, what does Bam Bam mean? What is, what is it's Bam It's a good Bam? question. Because Bam Bam, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything, right? I think I think it can mean anything to anyone. So it's malleable. I think <laughs> that's, that's why it's done so well. When you listen to Sister Nancy speak about it, she kind of says that it means something to the effect of what a ruckus. So to Sister Nancy, it's what a ruckus. Lauren Hill says it in the 1998 track Lost Ones, and it means something kind of different there. Um, and she says this line at the end. She says, you just lost one. What a Bam Bam which is almost like she's saying, um, what a shame. It kind of sucks to be you right now. What's a bomb bomb? <laughs> Kanye West samples it in his 2016 track Famous in a different way entirely again. When you hear it on Kanye's song, it has this much more kind of mournful and like slightly nightmarish quality, which is really, really at odds with Sister Nancy's original version, obviously. He really, he really chopped and screwed it and gave it a completely new lease of life. Mm. So... You talk about Jamaican music being in dialogue with what came before it and what comes after it. And I'm curious about if you can say more about this dialogue and how artists take influence from other artists and keep passing it along. Dialogue is the right word. Jamaican music, particularly reggae and dancehall, they are part of this beautiful kind of musical ecosystem in which artists are constantly nodding to their predecessors and their peers you know it's not just about looking forward it's also about kind of um paying tribute to the people that are kind of all around you as well um I was speaking to a friend about this last night I have to shout her out her name's Carmen Ander Woodruff and she is like a PhD researcher um expert on reggae Um, and she was saying that this is it's kind of part of reggae's whole purpose you know as a, as a genre it's intended to celebrate and chronicle and preserve black history and by mm. extension it is supposed to celebrate chronicle preserve the history of reggae um, and sampling is a way of doing that it's a way to pay tribute and to preserve when when you see black culture you you know especially black culture that is coming from the transatlantic slave trade you know they had to find alternative modes of documenting history I'm curious about the legacy of her and this song. You know, um, Beyonce used it in Hold Up. And Lauren Hill has used it. And what do you think the legacy is of her and the song for women artists and women DJs? 
but yeah, you can definitely trace our influence right the way through to people like Coffee today, um, who yeah. who similarly focuses on those kind of positive aspirational lyrics. Um, so yeah, Beyonce referenced it on Hold Up, but when she performed it, I mean, particularly at Coachella, she did so within this little section of the show that was kind of a tribute to Jamaica. Um, she also mm. had Dawn Penn's song, No, No, No. And I, I think that was just a way of her, you know, nodding to the enormous impact of Jamaica on music around the world yeah. and the extremely important part that women had to play in that. Sister Nancy's music career began to slow down in the 1990s in Jamaica. So she moved to New Jersey. Bam Bam itself didn't do particularly well in Jamaica. So it wasn't until she left Jamaica a few years later um, and moved to America maybe 96 but it was only then that she realized that Bam Bam had this kind of global audience. The problem was Sister Nancy wasn't earning any royalties. She was young when she recorded the album and she didn't know much about the music business. She was just excited to have her songs played on the radio. So her record label owned 100% of the rights. She needed to make a living in the U.S. so she got a job at a bank. Sister Nancy worked as an accountant at a bank in New Jersey for 15 years. Until one day in 2014, she saw a Reebok ad featuring, of course, her song. And that was the final straw. Reebok Skyscape, so comfortable, you'll forget you have them on. And I think it was her daughter that said, like, listen, mom, you need to do something about this. <laughs> you know, this song is everywhere and you're not earning a penny from it. Um, so yeah, she finally took legal action and she... So this is 32 years after it was released, bear in mind. She hadn't earned any money for 32 years. Um, they gave her a back payment, but that only covered 10 years. Um, and she also got 50% of the rights. Um, so started making money on anything that would be kind of released in the future. So where is Sister Nancy now? She returned to live music in 2016, right? She quit her job at the bank? Yeah, yeah, quit her job at the bank, went straight back into music. Um, now she, so she just released uh, another single. So yeah, I think her first solo single since the 80s. Um, mm. And she is starting to tour again. Cool. And what was it like for you to see her perform? Oh, uh, it was it's so, so brilliant. She's such a force when you listen to her on the record, but then hearing that voice live and it just hadn't, you know, faded at all. It was you know, even stronger when she was, I, yeah. I think she must have been in her 60s when I saw her. Yeah, it was amazing. I'm curious sort of what you think big picture we can learn from her story. Like, do you think her struggle is something that's still a problem for artists today? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely still a problem for many artists within reggae dance or particularly like veterans. But it's not even just uh, reggae, to be honest. It, there was a big thing in hip hop quite a few years ago with um, DJ Cool Herc, who was obviously one of the founding fathers. And there was this GoFundMe link going around to help him raise money for medical costs. Wow. And you know, this this guy helped to birth a billion dollar industry. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely still a problem, but it's nice to see, at least in Sister Nancy's case, that it had a happy ending. Alice. Thank you so much. This was so fun. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. I've put a link to Alice's piece in the show notes. It's from creation. 
Did you know that Billy Joel once made a musical? It was actually more of a danceical. And really, someone else made it using his music. But he approved it, and it was a huge success. It was called Movin' Out. The someone who made this danceical was Twyla Tharp. She's one of America's best-known choreographers. She was a MacArthur genius. She's been honored by the Kennedy Center. She's won a Tony Award. Twyla Tharp is this creative genius that I'm absolutely obsessed with. So she's a choreographer, originally a dancer, very avant-garde, bold, successful dancer in uh, in the 70s. I think she began in the the 1960s. And over the course of the 80s and 90s, she went on this creative tear where she was working with everybody. She worked with uh, John Curry, the uh, Olympic figure skater. She worked... Uh, with Milos Forman on Amadeus, the uh, multi-award-winning sort of biopic about Mozart. She worked with Mikhail Baryshnikov. She worked with Philip Glass. That's my colleague, Tim Harford. He's a columnist at the FT, known to many as the undercover economist. Tim has been thinking about Twyla Tharp a lot recently because he's working on a podcast that features her story. And in this story, a Billy Joel danceical was right up Tharp's alley. She's a modern dancer who's done a ton of crossover choreography work with people who aren't dancers per se, but who are really great at what they do. So in the early 2000s, she set her sights on Billy Joel. Who is, I mean, he's hugely successful. I mean, this is a, this is a man who sold about as many records as Michael Jackson. I, I went and checked. Right. He's not like a niche celebrity. He's really not a niche celebrity. He's also, I think it's fair to say, fairly middle-brow. Yeah. I don't think people regard themselves as being challenged by the complexity of Billy Joel's music. So Tharp and Joel have different audiences, but all of this seems like a sure bet. Joel loves the idea. They shake hands. And at first, things are easy. Joel gives Tharp access to his entire song catalog. The money flows in because who doesn't want to be part of Billy Joel's next act? And a trial run is set in Chicago. So they're in Chicago, and the curtain goes up. And people are expecting a musical, but on stage, no one's doing what you're supposed to do in a musical. They see a band on stage, which is cool, that makes sense. But then the band gets inexplicably lifted into a balcony with hydraulics. And a group of about 30 dancers come on stage, but the dancers don't sing. And there's also a guy at a piano doing a Billy Joel impersonation. And everybody loves him, but he quickly gets moved to the back of the stage. And so people just don't know where to look. It's just chaotic. And when curtains close, it becomes very clear that that was a total disaster. I should tell you some of the things the critics said. So um, stupefyingly cliched and almost embarrassingly naive, (laughs) leaves half the audience asking the other half, so what just happened? Who died? 
<laughs> Even the critics who kind of liked it said it was a glorious mess. And uh, and if it fails, then let it live in memory as a magnificent failure. If Oliver Stone did a Broadway dance musical, truly that's not a suggestion. It might come out like the more risible passages of moving out. Wow. They did not like it. Yeah. So one morning, Twyla Tharp and her best friend Jennifer Tipton are sitting over breakfast and they're reading these terrible reviews. So this is a very old friend and a very and a trusted colleague. And you can just imagine the scene, that the crisp white tablecloth and the orange juice and the coffee. And, yeah. and there are these stinking, stinking reviews. And Jennifer <laughs> Tipton looks Twyla Tharp in the eye and she says, you know they're right. Tim loves this story because Tim is fascinated by failure and how people learn from it. It's actually the theme of his podcast, Cautionary Tales, from Pushkin Industries. He's written a book about failure. He writes about failure for the FT. It's Tolstoy, isn't it? It's Anna Karenina. All yeah. happy families are alike. Unhappy families are, are all unhappy in their own way. It's the same with disasters. Every disaster is different. Every yeah. mishap is different. And that, that, that's something that I'm... I'm holds a certain morbid fascination for me. I should say that the story of moving out is one of many disasters on his show this season. The others are pretty varied. There's one about two girls who convinced Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, that fairies are real. There's one about the first electric car in 1985, which was totally ridiculed at the time. But what Tim loves about this moment when Tharp is eating a quiet breakfast with her best friend over terrible reviews, is that she has to confront a reality. She screwed up. One of the things that's fun about it is unlike some of the straightforward cautionary tales where it's just, oh, you know the plane is going to crash. Part of the fun is not knowing whether they will fix it or not. So this musical is a bust. Tharp needs to fix it. And she only has two weeks. So, I mean, what did she do? In a nutshell, the first thing was to, to have that meeting with Jennifer Tipton. Yeah. To, to overcome the denial, realize you've got a problem. The second thing was to realize there was a fantastic source of information here. If only Twyla could overcome her emotional reaction to the critics, which is, you know, she's human. And these people mm. are saying these nasty things about you in public. So what she did was to get a colleague of hers, in fact, her son who uh, manages her, to make a spreadsheet, basically, of all the different criticisms and to strip away the emotion and to strip away the context and to basically say, look, this person was confused by this. This person criticized this. And mm. how many times did the critics agree? How many times were they settling on the same basic points of contention? Because that's information. And yeah. once you can focus on it, on the criticism as a source of information rather than the criticism as a source of pain, mm. then you've got something. The third thing that Tharp did was to search for the simplest solutions possible. There was no time to reinvent the wheel. So she remembered that a few years earlier, she'd choreographed a dance that was a huge hit to a song that had a similar beat to the moving out opener, still rock and roll to me. She could just use that for the intro. And so they just said, okay, right, that's our intro. I've already created the dance. I'm just going to teach the dancers how to do it. It took three hours. And it was just a way of getting the five principles on stage so that the audience knew, oh, I'm supposed to be looking at those five people, not the, I don't know, 20, 30 people on stage. Tharp did this throughout the show, with everything. The piano man that everyone loved, he got to stay downstage. 
the dancers got simpler choreography. Instead of trying to convey a bunch of ideas with each dance, Tharp just picked one or two. And so the show comes out um, on Broadway, and it's a hit. It's a huge hit. Yeah, it's a huge hit. hit. I mean, it's not Hamilton, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it runs for years. It gets these beautiful reviews. People love it. The mm. New York Times critic loves it. Twyla Tharp gets a, a Tony Award for her uh, choreography. And the thing that really sticks in my mind is one of the reviewers who had reviewed the show in Chicago and been quite mean about it, he came down from Chicago and he re-reviewed it. And he said, look, it's not perfect, but I can't ever recall any show being so thoroughly revised and improved. And any director can learn a lessen from how Twyla Tharp has improved this show. And he's just got this little question. He goes, I just want to know, how did this happen? So this is the big question that Tim is trying to answer in all of his cautionary tales. And it's a question he thinks we don't ask ourselves enough. How do you turn failure into something? And even more, how do we even talk about failure in a way that's actually realistic without romanticizing it? I realized this when I I was giving a talk to a bunch of executives in, of all places, Disney World. (laughs) And one of the great old men of the Disney Corporation was on stage before me. He gave this really compelling speech about the importance of failure in the creative process and how at Disney, they they knew if if they weren't failing with half of what they did, they weren't taking enough risks. They weren't trying to really stretch their creative boundaries. And it it was wonderful. And I completely agreed. And everybody in the audience loved it. But this little thing at the back of my head said, something here doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. I got up on stage and I said, I agree with everything that he said, but are you actually planning to go back to the office on Monday morning and fail at half of what you do? (laughs) Right. I don't think you are. I don't even know what that would mean, but it sounds great when the guy from Disney says it. And I think there's an important truth there. It's very easy to sort of gloss over that truth and not think about, well, what does it actually mean Mm -hmm. to fail and to fail and to fail and to learn and to learn and to learn? What does that actually look like? Yeah. And, you know, there is so much entrepreneurship talk and self-help talk about failing forward. And I've been thinking about this, too. When you do fail or you have an idea for a project and you do it and it just tanks or it's not great, you're not like, great, that was wonderful. <laughs> was wonderful. Yeah. I'm really glad that that happened. You're like, I meant to succeed, right? Like the, the job is to succeed. And it doesn't yeah. feel good. And, it doesn't feel um, good at all. And there's all this double talk, isn't there? There like is, we're told, yeah. We're told, oh, you have to fail forward, as you say. Right. Try it and see what your boss says. So, Tim, I have just one more kind of broad question for you, which is, how do you think the way we talk about failure culturally has changed? One thing I do observe is that we talk about attitudes to failure, but one of the most important attitudes to failure is what is regarded as a failure. Mm. There are moral failures, there are business failures, there are failures of intelligence, there are failures of organization. And what is regarded as a failure can change in different cultures at different moments. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have 
I think now very, very low tolerance for perceived moral failures. And perhaps yeah. that's a good thing. At the same time, we seem to have an endless tolerance for guys who just, you know, blow up a hundred million dollars of venture capital and start another company and, and, and go again. Yeah, that's it's so It's not just, oh, we're tolerant of failure. It's like, like, that's not even a failure. That's just a line on your CV. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by reading reports of classrooms in, in Japan or Korea. These are cultures that are perceived as being very ashamed of failure and very reluctant to fail. And yet a maths class in Japan, I'm told, a kid will be put at the blackboard and will just be asked to solve a problem. And if the kid can't solve the problem, they're just encouraged to keep trying. Mm. And if they still can't solve the problem, then other kids are, are encouraged to chip in and to contribute until the class has solved the problem together. Now, I think for a child in America or in the UK, it would just be regarded as excruciating humiliation. Yeah. Whereas, you know, that's not a failure. That's just, we're learning maths here. That's, the, mm-hmm. that's what learning maths looks like. Tim wants us to actually take things we usually define in terms of success and failure and reframe them entirely as experiments. You know, as necessary, if sometimes painful, little successes in their own right. So sometimes you see it even explicitly that, um, oh, uh, they tried this new drug and the experiment failed. Whereas actually what they mean is not that the experiment failed, but the experiment successfully demonstrated that the drug didn't work. That is not a failed experiment. That is a successful experiment. And we need more experiments. And of course, many of those experiments will deliver disappointing results. But that doesn't mean the experiment was a failure. It means the experiment generated information. And as Twyla Tharp discovered, information is the key. You need to know what's working and what's not working. Otherwise, you can't fix anything. Yeah. Tim, thank you for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Cautionary Tales comes out with a new episode every two weeks. You can find it wherever you listen, and I've put a link in the show notes. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. If you like the story about Bam Bam, I asked Alice where you can learn more about reggae dancehall history. Where would you go if you were starting to get into this kind of music? Where? I watched this really brilliant film last night called In of the Yard. It's essentially about all these uh, reggae dancehall veterans re-recording their music to earn their rights back. It came out with an accompanying album, In of the Yard. Definitely go buy it. (laughs) I've put a link to In of the Yard in the show notes. Next week, we'll be talking about China, and how China's relationship with its language has shaped its internet culture. We'll also talk Twitter ethics with the author Dan Brooks. Please keep in touch. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show and specifically any TV and films you're watching or books that you're loving. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me mostly on Instagram and sometimes on Twitter at Lila Rapp. The FT is making key Ukraine coverage free to read to keep you informed. You can find that link and links to everything mentioned today in the show notes. I also have the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. I always do. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure that's the link you use. It's in the show notes. We are only weeks away now from the first USFT Weekend Festival, which is May 7th at the Kennedy Center in D.C. 
We've got Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Tina Brown, Leia Epi, tons of my colleagues you've heard on the show. I'll be there. I'm interviewing Mishama Bailey. She is executive chef at The Gray, and she's helping redefine African-American food as the foundation of American food, which it is. I'm really excited for it. I have a link and a discount code in the show notes if you'd like to come or watch it virtually. They've actually given listeners of the show 50% off with that link for a limited time. So go click through. And yeah, I really hope to meet you. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my incredible team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer, Lulu Smith is our assistant producer, and Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer, Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks go to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Thank you, and we will find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.